It's good to be here with you this morning, and uh, I'm going to invite you to take your Bible and open it to the Gospel of John. I know that many of you will not be shocked to hear this, but I struggled to figure out what I was going to do this morning as far as the message was concerned, and uh, spent all week reading and looking at the accounts in the Gospels of the life of Jesus, and especially His death, His burial and resurrection. And of course, on Easter Sunday morning today, the special Lord's Day that we are here, uh, it is, I mean, I suppose it would be easier, easy just to go right to uh, the end of the book and you know go to the last chapter and just kind of pick up the story there and all that. But uh, as I was reading and meditating on the Scripture and looking at this, um, a particular passage seemed to stand out to me in, in a distinct way, and, and I, I kind of focused in on it as I was studying. And, and actually, I, I, was t- I think I told Grace on Friday, uh, I was writing my message Friday, and about halfway through writing it, I went, well, that's not what I want to do. And so I, instead of the, I changed course a little bit and, uh, and uh, zeroed in on a passage that I had been looking at all week, but I wasn't sure if that's how I wanted to do it. And so wrestling with what I was going to do this morning and bring to you as far as a message, uh, we do commemorate today this uh, Easter uh, Sunday. Some, some people call it Resurrection Sunday. Um, in the history of the church, probably the most popular name for today is called Pascha. Uh, and uh, that is a, a word that's derived from the Greek and Hebrew terms for Passover. And that's probably around the world today still the most popular term for this day. This day that celebrates and commemorates the resurrection of Jesus Christ bodily to life uh, after He had been crucified and buried in a tomb. This is a historical act, the resurrection of Jesus. Uh, That shouldn't be a controversial statement, but it is today. The historical act. And, and, And this historical act is the basis for the entire Christian faith. If it did not take place, then we who are Christians are of all men most pitiable. That's what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15. And again, I realize that today it is very popular in some circles, even for professing Christians to say, well, it's not really that important if it actually happened. What matters is how we read it or what we think about it or what difference it makes or whatever. But that's just not what the Bible tells us. Paul says, we who have given our lives to Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, we who have not only given our lives but entrusted our eternity to Him, if He did not rise from the dead, we are desperately wasting our lives and we are casting eternity into the wind. And so, to be a Christian is to have hope in the Lord Jesus Christ and in Him alone. Not in our good works, not in our religious effort or affiliation, not in our baptism, not in communion, not in church membership, not in our good citizenship, not in our neighborliness. None of those things are a reason for hope today. Jesus Christ is a reason for hope. He's the only reason for hope. That is why a day like today is so important. If 
Well, let me put it this way. We, we believe in Jesus Christ, and by Him we are saved. And if He proves to be unfaithful, or if He proves to be false, then we are in trouble. But because He is faithful, and because He is true, if you have trusted in Jesus, who died was buried and rose again the third day. If you have trusted in Him, you have eternal life. Everlasting life that doesn't fade away. That is what today is all about. So this morning, as we look at the Gospel of John, and I'd like for you to turn to John chapter 18 this morning. And here in John chapter 18, the writer of the Gospel here uh, records the events of the night just prior to Jesus' crucifixion. So if we were to look at our timeline of events of when things happen in the, what is sometimes called the Holy Week or the Passion Week, uh, today of course is Sunday, the first day of the week, but you go back uh, to Friday would be the day of the crucifixion, then John 18 takes place on Thursday night. The events of John 18 uh, take place, and actually really, the events of John 13 through 18 take place on Thursday night of the week. And I realize that some people disagree on that. Some people believe that Jesus was crucified on Thursday. Some people believe he was crucified on Wednesday. They're all wrong, but they believe it anyways. And uh, he was crucified on Friday. But that's neither here nor there at this point. Okay, we can talk about that later if you have a question about that. Uh, But we get to the last four chapters of the Gospel of John. And Homer Kent calls these four chapters the passion victory. The passion victory is what Homer Kent calls all these four chapters at the end of John. And I've chosen that for the title of my message today. But what's interesting is when you read these chapters, it may not appear obvious at first why we would call these chapters the passion victory. Because these last four chapters of the Gospel of John describe in detail how Jesus was betrayed by a trusted associate, how he was unjustly tried by multiple levels of government authority. I mean, this is a failure of of every level of judicial authority. And on top of that, this records for us how uh, the... Jesus was tortured and brutally treated by the Roman soldiers. Soldiers who were skilled in what we might call the art of dehumanizing criminals. You know, we have a a constitution today in our country that says that you cannot treat criminals in an inhumane way. That we have to treat our our criminals, we we have to at least give them uh, basic, you know, human treatment. We got to give them food. We got to give them shelter. We can't mistreat them. We can't torture them and abuse them, right? Well, they didn't have such uh, laws and constitutional protections in the Roman world. And Jesus uh, certainly didn't enjoy any protections of the Roman law here. And he was treated brutally by these Roman soldiers. And then, of course, he was crucified. Crucifixion is the most extreme and cruel form of execution you could possibly imagine. And I'm not I'm not exaggerating to say that. It was designed to be that. Uh, It was invented 
um, I believe, by, by the people of Tyre, but then uh, it was adopted by the Romans, they saw it as a very good, useful thing, and they perfected it. Uh, that was one thing the Romans were good at, by the way. They didn't do a lot of creating, but they adopted other people's stuff, and then they perfected it. And that's what they did with crucifixion to dramatic and, and terrifying effect. Crucifixion was designed to prolong the, vic- the victim's suffering. It was one of the elemental points of crucifixion was it didn't kill you quickly. It was designed to, to stretch that on for days. And day after day after day of agonizing, incremental death. That's what it was designed to do. And Jesus faced all of that. These chapters also describe for us the skepticism and the doubt of people that had been with Jesus for years. People that had known him better than anyone, and yet we have recorded in these chapters their doubts, their skepticism, their denials. And so all of these chapters, if we read them at first blush, might not appear to us to be a record of victory. But we actually learn something here if we're careful to pay attention, that in these chapters, they're really not focused on the cruelty and inhumanity of man, but they're focused on the sovereign majesty of Jesus Christ. And as we look through this this portion today, we're not going to look through all of them, uh, but as we look through this portion today, what we're going to see is that Jesus Christ is to be trusted for our salvation. He is to be trusted today for our life. And He is to be trusted today for eternity. And we're only going to be able to examine the first part of one of these chapters. But there are several key principles which I think this will demonstrate to us that run throughout all of these chapters and are going to bring us to the end of the story today. So we are going to talk a little bit about the resurrection, but that's going to be at the end. So John 18, where are we at here? This situation here, what what scenario are we in? Well, Jesus and his uh, his disciples, 11 of his 12 closest disciples, are with him at the beginning of chapter 18. And they are leaving the the room where they had just had dinner. And uh, they have just uh, celebrated the Passover and had dinner there in the upper room in the city of Jerusalem. And they leave that place and they go out of the city and they cross over the the Kidron Valley, which is one of the valleys that runs alongside the city, and they cross over onto a place called the Mount of Olives. Some of you may have heard of the Mount of Olives. And there on the Mount of Olives, we're told they find a garden, a place where olives were pressed. You notice what he says there in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Now this is interesting, because John tells us that this is a place that Jesus and his disciples 
routinely went to this particular garden, this particular spot. We don't know exactly all the details, but uh, there's good reason for us to assume that this was probably owned by someone who was a, a follower of Jesus or who knew Jesus and said to him, hey, you can use this place when you need to. And it made it available to him. It was a private garden. It was a place where he was able to go. And probably when Jesus was in Jerusalem and in that area, he stayed there with his disciples. Now, we know other times he stayed in the city of Beth, in the town of Bethany, a few miles away, with uh, a family with, uh, you, that you might be familiar with, Mary and Martha and Lazarus, uh, siblings that, that he stayed with sometimes. But when they were there in the city of Jerusalem, this seems to be a place where they would often uh, stay. And so it was a familiar place. Now, why did they go there? Well, Jesus went there on purpose. And I'll tell you why he went there. He went there because this was the place where Judas Iscariot, remember I said there were 11 of his 12 disciples were with him. One of his disciples is not with him. That's Judas. And Jesus knew that Judas would know where this place was. And Jesus knew that Judas would find him there. This is on purpose. Judas left them earlier in the evening to go find the Jewish authorities. And so what, what was Judas doing that for? Well, he was going to go and tell the Jewish authorities where Jesus was so they could arrest him. But the key here was that they had to get Jesus alone, apart from the crowds, because it was always surrounded by crowds. Now, to understand this, you have to go back to chapter 11. Um, I don't know if we want to take time to turn there, uh, but you can jot it down if you like. Uh, in chapter 11, the Pharisees... Uh, begin to plot to kill Jesus. But what really is significant about chapter 11 in the Gospel of John is Jesus had been to his friend Lazarus's house, but Lazarus was dead. And Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead, right? Most of us are familiar with that, with that story, right? You've heard that before. Well, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And of course, guess what? If you raise someone from the dead, I, I think this would still be true today. If you raise someone from the dead, you're going to get attention. Uh, people are going to take notice of that. And that's exactly what happened, is people began to take notice of Jesus. And the word was spreading that this, something incredible had happened, something amazing had happened in the town of Bethany, which is just a few miles from the city of Jerusalem, which is the, the capital of the country and, and, and a, a major city. And so the news is spreading fast. But in John eleven forty seven, 47, after, the after Jesus had raised Lazarus, here's what we read. John says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council and said, What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. And so they have a problem. They said, You know, here's the deal, right? Uh, this isn't fake. Right? They didn't come up with a plan to go, this is fake news, and we're going to spread something out there, and we're going to do a disinformation campaign, and we're going to get people not to believe. No, too late for that. Word's already out. Lazarus was dead. Now he's alive. He's dead for four days. He's, now he's alive. This is not, you can't deny the miracle. They couldn't deny it. By the way, this, just as a aside, this shows the hard-heartedness of unbelief. That the, that the sinner, the person who's not repented, who's not turned to Christ, who's not been saved, is hardening their heart against the truth. So that even when the truth stares them in the face, they refuse to believe it. Because it's obvious what happened. And, and, and these guys even admit it, right? If we don't do anything about this, everybody's going to believe on him. 
Well, my question is, why didn't you believe on him? But that's a separate issue for another day, okay? When I preach John 11 sometime. But here's the thing, right? They, at that point, realized we got one thing we can do, and that is we got to kill this guy. We got to kill him. We got to get rid of him. And they also, by the way, began to plot how they're going to kill Lazarus, too, because you got this guy who's been raised from the dead. Not only do we got to kill the guy who raised him, we better kill him, too. Make sure he's gone because he can tell the story. And we got to get rid of both of them, right? I mean, this is, you know, this is what happens, right? Once you decide to kill one person, I mean, I've never done this, but if you decide to kill one person, then you have to kill another one. And it just kind of, it kind of gets out of control. And that's what's happening here, okay? This is a mess. So they've got a problem. They want to kill Jesus. But the biggest issue, the biggest hindrance to that is Jesus is always surrounded by crowds. No surprise. He can raise people from the dead. No surprise. He can feed multitudes of people. He can just manufacture food. I mean, he can heal every disease and every... Of course, he's got crowds around him everywhere he goes. So they got to get him alone. Because if you go in and... And you know what happens? Crowds can be very dangerous, right? We've seen, I mean, I say this not tongue-in-cheek, seriously. We've seen this not very, not very long ago here in our own nation. Uh, we've seen the danger of, of crowds of angry people. It, it's deadly. And there's destruction in many cities across our country, even today, that still, that's still, you know, we can see the effects of this. So crowds are dangerous. And if they turn, they can be very dangerous, so these, these guys know better. Like, well, we, can't, we can't attack or try to arrest Jesus in the middle of a crowd or we might have a riot on our hands. So what are they going to do? We've got to get him alone. So that's the key. They want Jesus dead. They can't arrest him publicly. They've got to find a place where he's going to be alone with just his closest disciples. That's where Judas comes in. Because Judas is the one now, he can be the informant. He can tell them when and where Jesus is going to be alone with his disciples. Now, it's hard to figure out Judas. Judas was disgruntled with Jesus, disillusioned with his teaching. And as a result of that, he made a deal with the leaders of Israel to find out Jesus' itinerary, to scout out a place where they could arrest him easily. But this didn't work out well for Judas. It was difficult because Jesus didn't make it easy for him. Jesus didn't make it easy. He, he did not confide in Judas about where they were going to eat the Passover. Hey, John doesn't really go into detail. We could compare the other Gospels and see that, that, that Jesus sent other disciples to go make arrangements, but he didn't tell Judas and the rest of them. So he compartmentalized the information, okay? Jesus was very shrewd here. He sent other disciples. They made arrangements for the upper room, for the meal and all that. Judas didn't know where it was going to be. So all of a sudden, Judas shows up with the disciples. Now he knows where Jesus is. The problem is, how is he going to go tell the, the Jewish leaders where Jesus is? And so they're actually in the, the upper room eating the meal. And this is the finally, now Judas knows where Jesus is, where he's, you know, and, he's, and no crowds. And so Jesus signaled Judas. This is fascinating. You read through this. In John, 12, uh, John 13, uh, Jesus signals to Judas to tell him when it's time. Okay, now is your chance. Go tell them where I am. Now, he doesn't say it in those words exactly, although close. He says that he, he dips a piece of bread and he gives it to Judas. And that was the sign. And Judas then leaves, and he goes out into the night, into the city of Jerusalem to find the leaders and to come back to get Jesus. But Jesus has got one more trick up his sleeve here. And so he and the disciples, while Judas is gone, they leave. Now, if this was like a, a mystery novel or something being written, this is like, you know, this would be a really cool little piece of, you know, misdirection, right? You tell Judas, hey, we're here eating the meal. Go get him. He goes, then we leave. Okay, guys, let's head out the door. So he won't know where we are. All right, well, that makes sense, 
except for the fact that when Judas appears there, no doubt in the upper room, with the Jewish authorities, with a, a group of Roman soldiers to arrest Jesus, they show up and the room is empty. Now where are they going to go? Well, Jesus made a mistake, right? He picked the one place Judas would know to look. The one place where he always went with his disciples. No, that was on purpose. They went to this garden because he knew that when Judas came and found the room empty, where would Judas think to look? He would go right to the place that Jesus always went with his disciples. So that's where Judas went. And that's why... That's why what happens here in chapter 18 happens. Jesus went to this garden place on the Mount of Olives, knowing that Judas would follow him there with these soldiers. Jesus chose the place. Jesus chose the time in which he was going to be arrested. What I want to emphasize with you this morning, I want you to see here, is that Jesus is absolutely 100% in control of everything. Everything that happens here, his, He's the one doing it. He's the one in control of all the things that are going on here. Nothing in, this, nothing in this scenario happens apart from the way Jesus plans it out. And that's important for us to understand. He led Judas to this very spot so that he could make the arrest easy and safe. That may seem strange to you. Like, why would, a, why would someone want to make their arrest easier? <laughs> that doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, right? Especially if they're innocent of wrongdoing. I mean, it's kind of that, the popular theme. Right? Anybody, anybody remember the old, well, there, was a, there was an old TV show and they made a movie about it called The Fugitive? Anybody remember that? A few of you remember that if you're willing to admit it. Um, if you're willing to admit you're old enough to know that. Um, I'm not, see, I'm now in the group that I can say, I'm old enough to know that, and you kids, you don't know. Okay, see, i got to relish that. Um, we love that kind of story, right? Guy's falsely accused, and what does he do? He goes on the run, and he's going he's gonna to clear his name? No. Well, that's not what Jesus does. Jesus is falsely accused, and you know what he's going to do? I mean, he's going to make it easy for them. He's going to make it as easy and safe as possible for them to arrest him without any problems. Jesus is in complete control of the events that surround his crucifixion and everything else. This is a key idea that John is emphasizing here. As I said, this is not a story of failure. It's not even a story. One of the other things, one of the kind of storylines that we like is we like the storyline of the, the, um, the underdog who just somehow at the last moment snatches victory out of the jaws of defeat. We all love those kind of stories. This is not that kind of story. This is a story of victory over sin and death and evil and wrong. And from beginning to end, Jesus is in complete control for His glory and for our good. And so the first thing we've got to see is Jesus chose the place and time of his arrest very carefully. Now watch how these events then play out in the garden. Right? Look at what happens. Then Judas, <clears throat> verse 3, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. 
And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now what's really fascinating here, if we look at how these events take place, is that Judas comes there in verse 3, and he finds Jesus in the garden, right where Judas thought, okay, he's not in the upper room, this is where he's going to be, and they find him exactly where he is expected to be. But notice, Judas doesn't come alone. He doesn't even just come with the officials. He actually brings a cohort of Roman soldiers. But notice how John describes them. These men are armed for a fight. They've got lanterns. They've got torches. They've got weapons. They are ready for Jesus to put up a fight, or so they think. But how does Jesus react to this when they show up? Jesus doesn't try to hide or escape. Notice, he steps forward and he speaks first. Whom are you seeking, he says. And they say to him, Jesus of Nazareth. What is Jesus' response there? Really fascinating. He says, I am he. This is a really interesting thing to say. Most of your Bibles, if you look at them carefully, that word he is probably in italics. The reason for that is it's implied... That, that, that word he is implied in the Greek, but it's not actually in there. There's not actually a word for that in the Greek language here. So you could read this as Jesus just saying, I am, without the he part. That's a translation addition there. But in that way, when Jesus speaks here saying, I am, it's kind of reminiscent of what God said to Moses all the way back in Exodus chapter 3. Exodus 3, that's where Moses met the Lord at the burning bush. Most of us have heard of that story before. Moses there asks the Lord, how can I identify you to the Israelites? Because I'm going to go down to Egypt, I'm going to go to the Israelites, and I'm going to tell them that you sent me. But how do I identify you to them? so that they'll know that you actually sent me. And here's what God says to Moses. I'll just read it. And God said to Moses, this is Exodus 3, I am who I am. And he said, thus shall you say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now in that verse, the phrase I am is the name Yahweh. When Jesus spoke it here to the Roman soldiers and to Judas, You can see what happened to them in verse 6. Now when he said to them, I am, or I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again, let's just think through this for a second. I don't know about you, but uh, I find it a little bit unlikely that a cohort of armed Roman soldiers would be easily driven back and knocked to the ground. These were not... uh, you know, these were not just average Joes. These are soldiers. These are professional fighting men, warriors who've been trained and armed. And they're certainly not likely to kneel in front of a man they are going to arrest, right? That, that doesn't seem like a likely kind of behavior from them here. So this is not something that just kind of happened this way. What's going on here? Well, I think without lifting even a finger and just by saying his name, Yahweh, the great covenant-keeping name that is given in the Old Testament, Jesus was demonstrating to Judas, to the Jewish leaders, to the Roman soldiers, and to his disciples that none of them had the power to arrest him. None of them could control him. 
You see, there's another incident we should look back to very briefly. I'm just going to mention it uh, in John 7. Again, you don't need to turn there. You can just jot this down. John 7. Because there was another time, an earlier year, when Jesus was in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. And again, there in Jerusalem, the Pharisees and the chief priests decided they were going to arrest Jesus and have him killed. So this was a, this was a year prior to this point, at least a year. And they are they're going to arrest Jesus. And so they send uh, officers to him to arrest him. But it's interesting because in John 7, 32, we read that they send the officers to arrest him. And, and about a dozen verses later, we read that the officers come back to them without Jesus. Okay? So they send the officers to arrest him. The officers come back and know Jesus. And the Pharisees say to the officers, what are you doing? In fact, here's I'll, I'll quote it. They say, why have you not brought him? And the officers answered this, no man ever spake like this man. See, they listened to something Jesus said, his teaching. And you can go back in John 7 and, and look at what Jesus taught. He, ta he spoke some things, and they, they were astounded by that. And they couldn't arrest him. Now, of course, that was because it wasn't time yet for Jesus to be arrested. But I think, in a way, what Jesus is doing here is he is reminding them that, you know what? Unless I say it's time, it's not time. Because all he had to do was say Yahweh, that name, I am. And the entire cohort of soldiers is driven back and down to their knees, as if made to bow before the king. Against their will, mind you. But because of the force of his word. You understand, Jesus did not need to use force to overcome his enemies. And no officer of the law could arrest Jesus unless he wanted to be captured. And so what we see here as well, not only did Jesus choose the place and time, but Jesus chose to let himself be betrayed. Everything that's happening here is Jesus choosing this. He is the one who is orchestrating this. Oh, sure, Judas is acting on his own volition here. Judas is, is, is willfully sinning against God. He's rebelling against the Lord. Yes, these Roman soldiers are coming out and, and all of these men are making decisions, but we need to understand that Jesus is in complete control of this. And he's emphasizing that. You can't even touch me unless I let you do it. Okay. Now go back to verse 7. Because the soldiers asked Jesus again, or I'm sorry, Jesus asked the soldiers again, verse 7, whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. So they repeat the question and answer. Verse 8, Jesus answered them, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. Now, it's interesting here because, again, they ask, or he, he tells them what they're looking for. They, they tell him Jesus. He identifies himself as the one they're looking for. And he says, let my disciples go free. And Jesus does this twice. Why did he do that? Why, why is this question and answer? Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. Who are you seeking? Jesus of Nazareth. Why do that? Well, Jesus is drawing the focus and attention on himself and away from his disciples. Again, Jesus is doing something intentional here. It's on purpose. He is separating himself out from his followers here. Making sure the soldier's attention is focused on him and him alone. Reminding them that he is the one they are to arrest and not his disciples. You see, that's what's going on here. Jesus is, is drawing that attention on himself. 
Now, why does he do that? John tells us here in verses 8 and 9. John says, right, Jesus says, If you seek me, let these go their way, verse 8. Now, verse 9, that the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. So you have a whole group of Roman soldiers here with weapons. These men would have no problem whatsoever dispatching a dozen or so of these uh, relatively incompetent, um, you know, average Joes who, who are palling These aren't, you know, Jesus, it's not like Jesus has like a, a you know, a super uh, special forces team around him, okay? The, the, these, this cohort of Roman soldiers have no problem and probably would sleep perfectly well that night having dispatched a dozen Jewish dissenters. They, they, wouldn't, they wouldn't care a bit. Just kill them all. Fine. Be done with them. They could have done that in a second. And Jesus knows that. And so in order to prevent violence that would end badly for his disciples, Jesus draws the attention on himself and makes it very clear that he is the one they have been sent to arrest, not himself. And so we see Jesus here doing something else very intentional. He is isolating himself and protecting his disciples, right? He's isolating himself from them to protect his disciples. See, even in all of this... Even while all of this is going on, Jesus is, is, is protecting and taking care of his disciples. That's so important. John says it this way. He says, this was done to fulfill the word Jesus has spoken. Of those whom you, speaking of God the Father, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Now, this is an interesting statement that John makes there in verse 9. It's, it's presented as a quotation, Right? Uh, you see it there, at least in, in my Bible, it's got quotation marks around it. The problem is finding where Jesus actually said this. Finding this quotation uh, elsewhere is a little bit difficult. Um, I'm not going to get into that because there's, there's two potential passages it could be referring to. I think I know which one John has in mind. And I think it's John 6 and verse 39. In John 6, 39, let me read that for you. He says this, This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Now this presents us with an interesting challenge. Why? What's going on here? Because back in John 6, when Jesus says this, that of all the ones you've given me, I should lose nothing, what is he he's talking about? Well, he says there that in John 6, he's talking about saving those who believe on him, but he clearly ties it to the resurrection at the last day, talking about the end times, talking about in the final end of the story, Jesus is going to save them. He's going to raise them from the dead. But here in John 18, the resurrection is not in view at all here. Jesus is protecting his disciples from being killed by Roman soldiers in the moment. What's the connection here? Why does John point us back to that? How can this be a fulfillment of that? Now, I think it's kind of, in a sense, an, what we might call an argument from the lesser to the greater. Jesus is going to his own death, his own crucifixion, right? And yet, what is he doing in that moment? He is, even in that, he is protecting his disciples from physical harm. But in protecting them here from physical harm, he is demonstrating that he not only has the power to do that, but he also has the power to do what he said in chapter 6 which is to protect them ultimately and eternally by means of the resurrection. So that even death cannot conquer and cannot separate us from Jesus Christ. 
Now, Jesus' disciples here in this situation don't make it very easy. Because you look at verse 10, Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Peter, of course, is very impulsive. We, we read about that throughout the Gospels, that oftentimes Peter says things and does things that are kind of rash and foolish, and this is no exception. He tries to attack one of the men who is standing nearby. He takes out a dagger. It says a sword here, but the word for the sword here is not the big, big you know, military sword. It's a, it's a short sword. It's a dagger of some kind. And Peter tries to hack this guy's head off, I think, but he's a bad aim. Uh, he's not very good with a sword. And again, he's just a fisherman, so he's not a trained soldier using a sword, all right? Most of us wouldn't have a lot of success with a sword either because we don't train with it. We don't know what to do with it. Right? Looks easy on TV anyways, um, but it's not as easy as that. <laughs> yeah, well, we're not going to use... Peter wasn't using the foam sword. He did manage to cut the guy's ear off, which is kind of gruesome. But we, we, the other Gospels tell us that, that, that Jesus healed him. He put the ear back on. He repaired it. But what's important here is that, and this is important, even in this moment where one of his disciples decides, I'm going to take matters in my own hands and does something really foolish, even then, Jesus is still in control. How so? Well, because Jesus steps in. He rebukes Peter. He heals the man. He, he, he takes the entire situation, and he, the term that we use today in, in like, you know, police uh, in, in, in policing is de-escalation. Right? He de-escalates the situation. Jesus does that. He's the one in control of this. Because this could have, this action by Peter, if, if Jesus doesn't do anything, this is probably when the Roman soldiers draw their swords and everybody, dead, everybody dies. Right? This is when everything turns really bloody. But instead, no, Jesus de-escalates everything. Jesus controls this. And, and this is really important. I think this is good for us to know. Maybe it's just me, but maybe it's just me who struggles with this, but I think it's good to know that my impulsive actions, which from a purely human standpoint might appear or might threaten to derail all of God's plans, my impulsive actions cannot keep Christ from fulfilling His agenda. That's a good thing to know. My foolishness cannot disrupt and derail His plans. Jesus here chose to overrule his disciples' foolishness. Again, Peter apparently does not understand. He does not put the pieces of the puzzle together very quickly here. Not quickly enough. He apparently thinks these men are taking Jesus against his will. But we've already seen that that's not the case, right? Jesus is absent. They cannot touch him against his will. All he has to do is speak a word and they're driven back. They have no control here. But Peter doesn't understand that. We often are just like Peter. <laughs> we fail to understand that our Lord is in control of all things. And we decide, you know what? Things aren't working out. Things aren't moving along. Things aren't going the way I think they should. I'm going to take matters into my own hands and I'm going to force the issue. And what we really should do is trust Him and allow Him 
to preserve us. You see, this is it. Jesus is caring for his disciples. He has taken steps to make sure that Peter is safe. And what does Peter do? He just about messes the whole thing up. He tries. Does, the, does his worst. Okay. But Jesus still is able to accomplish his plan in spite of his own disciples' foolishness and stupidity. And I'm thankful because I've done more than enough to derail the plan if it were possible to be done. And that's just me. You might agree for yourself. You certainly agree based on me. I know you all looking at me thinking, yes, you have done that. Okay. That's okay. But it's a good thing that Jesus is not distracted or defeated by our foolishness. I will just point this out. In this case, Peter really suffers no negative consequences for his behavior here. Sometimes our foolishness brings negative consequences and we experience more than Peter did. But in spite of that, even when we are experiencing that, God is still accomplishing his work. We are not derailing his plan. And that's good to know uh, because sometime today or this week, you and I are going to, once again, throw a monkey wrench into the plan, but God will not be, not be disrupted by that and disturbed by that. Okay. He is capable of overruling us and our own foolishness. So whatever else we might say about this passage, as we look at these verses, what I hope you see this morning is that Jesus is not a helpless victim of circumstance. He's not even a victim of the schemes of wicked men, which are clearly at play here. And sometimes we, we say, well, yeah, if everything was neutral, we could kind of understand that, you know, bad things happen, but everything works out okay. But there are people that are out to get us. There are people who are against the truth. There are people who, who are opposed to what's right and good. Does anybody, is anybody with me in believing that there are people in our society today that are opposing what is right and good? Anybody on board with that? Okay. Yes, absolutely there are. But you want to know something? Jesus is not a helpless victim. Jesus is not subject to the, the, the evil schemes and wickedness of men. Rather, John tells us here, Jesus is in complete control. He intended to be betrayed. He even intended for everything that was going to happen to him after he was betrayed. He tells us that right here. We read it already. Verse 4. I kind of went over this quickly. I didn't didn't really hammer it. Notice what he says in verse 4. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them. John says Jesus already knew all the stuff that was going to happen to him. He knew not just the betrayal. He knew the, the beatings. He knew the, 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 the sham trials he was going to face. <clears throat> he knew all of the things that were going to happen to him. And still he went forward. We see this, and I'm just going to touch on the things that we see in the next chapter just to, to show you how this, I think, plays out throughout this. Um, we see it clearly in his interactions with Pilate. Pilate, the Roman governor who, who tried Jesus and ended up sentencing him to death. But in chapter 19, in verse uh, 10, and uh, or right around verse 10 there, um, Pilate, well, Pilate is questioning Jesus, and Jesus doesn't, doesn't answer him. He just ignores him. And what does Pilate say? Chapter 19, verse 10, Pilate said to him, are you not speaking to me? In other words, you're going to play the quiet game? I don't do this. I'm in control, Pilate says. He says, do you not know I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? 
Again, think about this. This is the, he's speaking to the man who just spoke one word and the entire cohort of Roman soldiers were driven back. Pilate can't do that. But Jesus did that. And Pilate is threatening him. Saying, you don't, do you understand the power that I have? What does Jesus say to that? <laughs> he says, you could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. He scoffs at the idea that Pilate had the power to take his life. Why? Because Jesus was in control even while he was on trial for his life. Pilate could do nothing if it had not been given to him the authority to do it. Jesus said, no, no, you're not in control of this, Pilate. I'm actually the one pulling the strings here. I'm the one orchestrating the events here. Later on, he's on the cross. Get this. Jesus is on the cross being executed. And we're told something. The wording of this always astounds me. It's a little bit later in chapter 19, verse 30. John says, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. I already said this. Normally, crucifixion took hours. In, in, in most, I would say in many cases, it took days for someone to die. The Romans had perfected that. They could keep a man alive for days on the cross suffering. But you know what? They couldn't make Jesus suffer one moment longer than was necessary for him to fulfill his mission. And when it was finished, he gave up his spirit. That's what the wording of this is very clear. He gave up his spirit in death. You see, Jesus was in control even of the very moment of his death. And this is confirmed, if you keep reading there from John 19, from verse 30, down, because they send, the Jewish leaders send the soldiers. They say, will you, they say to Pilate, will you send the soldiers to break their legs? We want this over because we got a special religious holiday coming up tomorrow. We want this execution to be done. It's kind of a, it, that's, a that's a whole other thing, looking at the, the hypocrisy of the leaders here. They're so concerned about the religious rituals, and yet they're, they're, they're murdering a man. Can we just get this over with a little bit quicker? We've got to get to our religious festival. We're get, get this murder done? I mean, it's just, that's... Wow, okay. But anyways, what happens? Of course, you know they send these guys out. And what do they find? They find Jesus is already dead. Which implies, by the way, that the other two men were not dead. That was normal. The other two men had to have their legs broken to get them over with. Jesus, no, he's already dead. And so they try to speed it up and realize, no, no, he even got to that before them. They couldn't even, they, they couldn't control it, even when he was on the cross. His death was not by chance. His death was not subject to the plans of men. And of course, the, the, the greatest demonstration of this is the resurrection itself. Chapter 20 is all about the resurrection. Even death couldn't hold him. Even the grave couldn't keep him. He arose victorious on the third day, just as he said he would. And his disciples disbelieved they were dismayed, the Jewish leaders and the Roman guards, they were upset, and Jesus rose from the dead. Again, if you read through chapter 20, we see John recording four different, uh, chapter 20 and 21, John recording four different appearances of Jesus after his resurrection, which makes it super clear here. Jesus' disciples didn't hallucinate this. This wasn't something they made up. It wasn't a manufactured story. They didn't steal away his body. Jesus rose from the dead. He who had once been dead is now alive forever. 
And John says in John 20 and verse 31, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Have you believed on Jesus? That He is the Messiah, the very Son of God, that He died for your sins, that He rose again, that you could have eternal life? That's the purpose for His coming. John says, that's the reason I wrote this. He could have used His power, which is so clearly demonstrated. He could have used His power to to, uh, escape from death. He could have used His power to overthrow the Romans. He could have used His power to destroy all of them. But He didn't. Instead, He used His power to go to the cross and give Himself up for you. Will you trust Him? Will you trust His power to save you? Will you trust in Him for life and eternity? Understand that whatever you're facing today, whatever your circumstances are, Jesus Christ is still just as much in control as He was on the day that He died in the morning when He rose from the dead. I hope that you'll trust Him today. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank You again for this privilege that we have of gathering together and opening Your Word, of considering this brief, uh, this brief moment, really, just a few moments in the life of Jesus, that night that He was being betrayed to go to the cross. Father, I know that we're often tempted to think that things have gotten out of control. Or, or, or maybe even more than that, we're tempted to think we somehow can have control. We can take control of our life. Will you open our eyes today to help us to see that's just not true? That the one who is in control of our life, the one who is in control of the events and circumstances of our life, the one who is in control of this world and of all eternity is Jesus Christ, the very Son of God. And that He, with all of the power and all of the authority, He came and gave Himself up for us. And then He rose from the dead, conquering sin and death and offering to us eternal life. Oh, I pray You'd help us to trust Him today. Help us to follow Him today. Help us to be at peace knowing that He is in control of our life and of the circumstances around us. Because He lives, we too will live. And we have hope. Not just today, but for all of eternity. Oh, I pray You do a work in our hearts today of assurance and hope and love and joy in Jesus Christ that we would know Him. And if there's anyone who has listened to this message who has never trusted in Christ before, I pray they would see their desperate need that in their sin they stand condemned, but Jesus died for them that they might live. And I pray they would cry out to Him and beg for mercy and beg forgiveness and receive the gift of life. We ask that you would glorify yourself in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.